G'day and welcome to Occupied, your fortnightly podcast for all things occupation and occupational therapy. This episode, I'm super pumped for this one. This is one that I have had in the works and wanted to do for quite some time. Something that uh, I was quite passionate about in my clinical practice. I'd like to introduce the lovely Karina Sanson-Fisher in to discuss her expertise in this area around harm minimization so particularly in clients who use illicit substances drugs alcohol uh, even tobacco at times Uh, sometimes getting off completely isn't the goal be going completely cold turkey is not the goal and we need to look at minimizing the amount of harm that can be done instead so buckle in an epic conversation Please enjoy, and I hope you get a lot out of it. So, I I mean, I think I actually did find OT. Oh, okay. So, I went back to uni in my late 20s, having already had like a life and, you know, like having done a bunch of things. I thought I want to have a career, not a job. And I want to work in mental health. And then I wrote down every job I could think of that worked in mental health. And I crossed them out based on things like whether people would like spending time with me. And uh, I got to OT. People in general. Well, no, like, I was like, (laughs) do I want to be a social worker? And people always told me that I should have been a social worker. And then I was like, I would rather be slightly more popular. So I really wanted to work (laughs) on an acute unit. That was where I wanted to be. I knew I wanted to be on a mental health acute unit and I wanted it to be like people were pleased to see me. And I asked around, who's that person of my friends who are psychologists and social workers? And they said OT and I said, great. And so then when I started looking at it, I thought this is like a good fit for me. This is about like practical stuff. It's about what you do and what you care about and about a person and what they care about and not putting your ideas on them. So I thought, yeah, that'll do it. And then, you know, the whole way through uni, I had a bit of a crisis of confidence as we continued to talk about over toilet aids. But eventually I graduated and was like, yes, I can do all of those things. Like this is the space where I can just support people and have them sometimes be happy to see me. That's a dream. That is the most unique way I've ever heard anyone answer that question. Oh, is it? I've never no heard. Any, I've never heard anyone go. I chose OT because I want people to like me when I come into the room. That's. What? I wouldn't have even thought to look units? at that. No, no, I've worked in a. I know it's true, but yeah, it's not something like I ever you. thought of, thought of before. I chose the profession. I didn't even know what it was yeah. when I chose it. I chose it because of a sock puppet. <laughs> you chose it because you're like, oh, I want people I don't to like. So- oh, you haven't listened Tell to that the episode, sock puppet have you? Story? No, I've listened to a lot, but I've missed the sock puppet. The sock puppet. Do I get kicked off for not Maybe. being That's invested We're done. enough? Thanks, yeah. everyone, for listening. Okay. Bye. Yeah. <laughs> uh, no, I was originally doing engineering. I'll try and summarize it real quick. Uh, I was originally doing engineering. Mm. I hated it. It was way too much math. And I, had a, I was living on <laughs> campus at the time. And a friend of mine down the hallway, I saw him one day heavily inebriated and playing, with a, playing guitar with a sock puppet. 
And I was like, what the hell is going on here? And he told me that he'd made it in class and he was studying OT. <laughs> and I went, okay, that sounds interesting. So I waited until he sobered up the next day uh, and had another chat with him about what it actually was. And I'm like, oh, that actually sounds pretty interesting. And then I started doing some research and went, oh, yeah, this is something that sounds like it's right up my alley. So I changed. So I chose because That's of a sock amazing. puppet and you chose because you wanted people to go, oh, yes, she's here. <laughs> and they do. They do, it, yeah. Which I don't, yeah, I've never quite understood whether that says something about us or every other profession. I mean, I think we get a nice job. I think, you know, like I love my social work colleagues, but sometimes I get the easier job you know like people I mean I'm not working in an acute unit now but certainly in the inpatient units people felt like I was on their side and that was easy for me like I was like that that's a it's not about the work I'm doing it's about like my role people automatically think well Karina will probably help me out on this Mm. so like we get this like automatic step up into being people's allies which is so powerful and lucky I think on the acute unit too and the couple of acute units that I've worked on is we're not – like other professions are there to fix a problem. We're not necessarily yeah. there to fix a problem. We're there to make things better that that person may not have even sort of realised were issues at the time until we sort of have a sit down, have a chat and maybe you know do an assessment or whatever's going on. Um, but we're there to improve just life in general in a lot of cases rather than, oh, this is an issue, I need this fixed, Uh, I'll go and see the social worker or the psychologist or the nurse or whoever it is that that problem relates to professionally. So I think that's that's the one, well, not the one, but that's a big difference between us and other professionals, especially in an acute unit setting anyway. Yeah, I saw, I did training with um, Dr. Matthew Berry, who's a psychologist who works in substance use, and he spoke about... Um, a person being kind of like a garden and psychologists by training need to weed. It's what they need to do. They need to find the difficulties and they need to get those difficulties sorted. Mm -hmm. What they're not as good at is planting. And his explanation was that OTs and to some extent social workers are really good about adding plants into that garden. So, you know, like adding flowers, adding beautiful plants. And psychologists by training have just been taught that they need to be pulling weeds all the time, identifying problems and getting rid of those. Um, And he was kind of just speaking about the importance of all of those things happening together in a multi-disc team, just being able to be really powerful if you do all of the gardening, if that makes sense. He probably explained it much sooner. No, that's a, I've never thought of it like, it makes a lot of sense. It's, I was just thinking like, that's scary as hell for me because literally I have, right here next to me, the only plant I've ever been able to keep alive for more than a week. So I'm wondering whether I'm any good at planting things either. Mm, I mean... Maybe I should be a psychologist, (laughs) I don't know. My plants are very healthy. I know, you got got (laughs) cactuses and all sorts of stuff. Yeah, Uh, there's like, I can see maybe like 10 plants where I am now. So, you know, I'm allowed to keep doing I've, the job. I've only got, well, I've got a couple in here, but I've only got like the first one that I've ever been able to keep alive. And that was only because a friend of mine was like, here, this is what you have to do. And like, set me a schedule for like watering it and stuff. So I didn't kill <laughs> it. 
other than that, they'd probably be dead already. I mean, I think it's not literal. I think it's okay if it's not I'm real plants. <laughs> no, that's a really good way of explaining. I've never heard that before, but it makes a lot of sense, and it kind of fits with like what I was just saying before about like everyone else seems to be fixing problems, and we're there to, you know, improve well-being, as opposed to just like, mm. oh, what. Your Centrelink payments are stopped or, you know, you're having issues with mum and dad. Now, I don't think our social work colleagues would be happy with hearing them. You know they're working on complex social environments. I didn't say social work. I was just identifying a problem that regularly comes up in an acute unit. And then they they go, you said social work. I didn't say that. That's not on me. I'm not claiming I, well, that. I'm just, you know, I expect my social work colleagues to protect me when they say, where's the nail clippers? The OT has them. So I need to protect them when people say this person Fair needs Centrelink. Where's the social worker? Fair enough. Uh, so you've always wanted to work in acute. How did you end up in drug and alcohol? Um, so I, my not first... like addiction. Yeah, yeah. substance use <laughs> is our current use, best language. Um, so my first job was in forensic and involuntary mental health in a medium secure unit. And then I got a position in our local dual diagnosis, so substance use and mental health acute unit. Um, and there I was like, this is like the big change for me. I was like, this is what is um, a modifiable risk factor, I guess. Like this is the work that... Um, is really present in people's lives. And I started thinking about how important substance use was in people's lives. So that kind of work around the dark side of occupation and stuff, which just felt comfortable for me. Like it was always something that I was like, yeah, that fits for me, that there's occupations that are not... um, Hurting. Well, I guess that are not considered health promoting Mm. by By a a bunch of white middle-class people, you know, like I'm not saying that substance use is necessarily health promoting, but that, you know, like that we don't have to always be thinking about um, who says something's good. So in that space, I started to think about that and about how the work there felt really comfortable for me as an OT, um, that there weren't a lot of OTs working in that space and I kind of couldn't figure out why, and I still don't know why. Like, there, there aren't, um, locally for me, there aren't a lot. I've made some good connections, but Australia-wide, there aren't that many OTs working in substance use. I know there aren't in the States because they often, people often contact me and are like, from the States, and are like, oh, can OTs do that work? Um, and it just felt like that was the work I should do. Like, I was like, oh, it turns out acute units is not it. Like this thing that I'd been so focused on. Um, So when a position came up in a court diversion program, um, which is just a generalist clinician position, I took that. And then when a position came up in a cannabis counselling service, I took that. And then when a position came up in an assertive community treatment team that was OT specific, I took that. Um, And so that's where I'm at now. Um, And it feels like it's true OT. 
like it's not limited by anything because it's all the stuff that you do in your day and what's important to you. I don't have to focus on symptoms. I can focus on a person. Oh, I love that. I love that so much. That's speaking my language. <laughs> speaking everyone, yeah, me language, too. But, oh, yeah, I hope so. That's awesome. Because I think one of the things we chatted online, I don't know, when we connected months ago, years ago, mm-hmm. a year ago maybe, um, and then you changed your Instagram handle to arm reduction OT. Mm-hmm. Why Why did you do that? What was it before? I can't remember, even remember what it was before. Uh, I mean, I think it was like inclusion That's OT or something. Yeah. Um, so why the change to harm reduction for starters? Because, and then what is it? Uh, so... Because that's what I was posting about. So that's what I was finding, that that's what um, I was most interested in. And also it's what people had the most questions about. Um, so harm reduction in Australia, clinically, I know we tend to use harm minimization and harm reduction kind of interchangeably. Um, and in the States, I know the language is more likely to be harm reduction. The kind of definition that I'm using is the National Drug and Alcohol Policy definition, which is that harm min, minimization, sorry, is the overarching thing. And that's, you know, kind of a set of policies that are about reducing harm, um, but that there's three branches. So uh, there's supply reduction, something along those lines, which is law and order. Mm. It's, you know, like um, preventing. Yeah, yeah. It's not us. Minimise the amount of actual access to substances that are on the street. It's not a health problem and it's not OT. So I don't do that. Um, The other bit that some OTs do and that I guess that I do a little bit is around education um, and it's about stopping people from starting substance use so that work is largely around um, promotional stuff like I don't here in Newcastle we have happy healthy Harold who is a giraffe we have who that comes to schools is it everywhere yeah I remember oh, I, I had Harold know. when I was a kid but I don't understand because how can Harold go to your place if he's at my school? Like, oh, he travels Is he around. like Santa Claus? <laughs> oh, is he permanently at your school? No. Oh, I was but I'm say, just saying. He used to travel around. We used to follow him. We were like, oh, the school in the town next door has got him. We must have him next week. Yeah. We used to. Did you have a disco on a bus? Uh, it was, yeah, it was a very, it was kind of creepy when you say it out loud as an adult, but it was a dark bus <laughs> that you go into and then a giraffe yeah. puppet came out of the wall. Uh, and then yeah. later it turned into a TV. It wasn't even the puppet. I'm sure it was like animated and that wasn't nearly as cool as the puppet. Imagine being from somewhere where there's no Happy Healthy Harold during this conversation, by I the know. way. Yeah, it's so confusing. We should probably elaborate. Harold's a giraffe. Uh, he is a, <laughs> he's a giraffe. He's a health promotion he... giraffe. Yeah. That promotes, yep. I think he's it's, only the, I think it's only the primary school, I believe, or maybe even the earlier years of primary school. I imagine. Uh, but he is yep. there to promote the uh, probably more the abstinence uh, message with regards yeah, yeah. to substance use. Um, you know, don't do drugs, stay in school, that kind of thing. 
Uh, and he used to travel around and like when I all through primary school, I used to have him maybe I think it was once a year he used to come around to our school and each class would pile into this mm-hmm. this mobile uh, classroom, I guess, and you'd sit on the floor and listen to Harold's message and used to get little goodie bags to take away and it was all very exciting mm-hmm. at the time. But there probably isn't too many Australian kids of our generation that don't know Harold. I even know where his van's parked in this town. I know. You do? I do. Amazing. I know. Okay, Harold so painted we can the talk about our Harold fandom later. Yep. But so he's, Harold's another part of the harm minimization, like, structure. Harm reduction is what I'm most interested in. It's... Uh, like a movement that's a good marriage between evidence-based practice and grassroots peer-led work, which accepts that people engage in behaviours that are so-called risky, um, not necessarily substance use, but that's kind of the space we're talking about today, that that cannot be eliminated. People will continue to use substances. Um, We had a brief chat about maybe a gin I had my coffee this morning like substance use exists on a very big continuum Um, and when you work in a harm reduction framework you meet a person where they're at so you put the focus on harm that might occur to the individual or to the community rather on the behavior or blame or um, trying to eliminate a behaviour that we know for some people is not going to be eliminated. Mm -hmm. Um, So you make reasonable, rational goals that fit with what a person cares about and that are actually achievable. You honour their choices. You um, respect that people are individuals who will do what they're going to do and that that's okay. So at its core harm reduction is what OT does if we're doing our job well at its best it's OT at its best so like it's this very good marriage but for whatever reason I think there are a lot of OTs who are quite uncomfortable working in that way I that's been my experience as well because that's one of the questions I often get from students is you know, have you ever worked with anyone while they're, they're, that uses drugs? I'm like, yeah, all the time. Like, ninety <laughs> like percent of the people, yeah, like, anyone. Like, I had a coffee. Have this you worked morning. with a human? Yeah, you're drinking coffee now. Like, mm-hmm. it's, everyone uses something. Everyone's got a vice, but I mean, obviously, they're they're looking at it more from an illicit substances point of view, and then some of them do struggle to comprehend. Like, you know, do you have to report them? Do you have to? Like, can you just say, no, I can't work with you because you use drugs? Like, what is the the protocol? Because obviously, as a student, like, you, you, you look at it like you're coming into this health profession and you're trying to make everyone healthy. And and, and not to go back much onto Harold, but pro- programs like that, <laughs> as we said before, are very much about the, that sort of abstinence model where stay away from drugs, drugs are bad, which, you know, I'm not saying that that's not true, but... I think if that's the belief that people are coming up with, then any sort of variation to that is going to be seen as weird or how does that work or, 
you know, mm. are you allowed to do that kind of thing? Mm. Um, and I know, like, you know, the states, the, like the war on drugs from, I don't even know when it started, or the 70s or whenever it was, like their health promotion of that sort of stuff is similar to ours in that it's, you know, drugs are bad, don't touch them, stay away. You know, anyone that uses drugs is bad. Um, mm. Like it's very much that sort of negative promotion that most people, and I'd say it's, most Western cultures anyway have probably grown up with that sort of frame of mind around substance use. Yeah. And I think particularly in that kind of war on drugs idea, it the effect that that has on people is not equal. So people who have been more marginalised by our societies experience the harms of the war on drugs more than people who have privilege and power. So that's something I think that needs to be like part of that conversation is that we're not, we're not just talking about things happening across the board, that an abstinence only a punitive kind of system has more negative impacts on the people who hopefully we came into the work to support like the people who we really want to provide care for particularly those of us working in the public health system who I would hope are passionate about providing equitable care. Hmm. I think one of the interesting things I remember reading well, I've read it multiple times on multiple different formats and programs and stuff like that is um, when they look at that sort of app model so they would use things like prohibition for an example is it doesn't Yes, it it cuts down the total use uh, for people, you know, as a population, but what it tends to do is push that use that's still going more underground, but then because certain... I've heard this theory that because certain drugs are then harder to access, the they tend to, you know, end up being stronger. People make them stronger because it's harder to get them so they can, you know, it's a it's an economy in a lot of instances. Mm-hmm. So the risk of the individual substances actually increases as well because they're changing the substances based on the market where, you know, before, say, marijuana was illegal, it was fairly mild compared to what people would get nowadays. It was, you know, it wasn't, yeah, there was I've no hydro that. or anything like that. It was just growing out in the paddock or something. Um, <laughs> but... Like things like technology to try and I guess increase that like the economic viability of selling marijuana has made the the actual strains of weed much stronger than they used to be and that kind of thing and that's mainly because of that sort of essentially a prohibition of it making it illegal whereas you look at alcohol alcohol's same story like we have things you can look on the side of the packet and see how strong it is like a bottle or box or whatever you're drinking mm. uh it's it's much more regulated so there i have seen arguments to say like if you essentially ban things it's gonna actually make the problem worse yes for a smaller percentage of the population but the risks to that percentage are much higher because of the changes to the substances and we also push people into unsafe spaces. So we see that 
um, you know, say with the classic kind of harm reduction example is a safe injecting room. Mm. So if you don't allow people access to clean fits, to clean injecting equipment, um, to safe places to inject, people don't stop injecting. They inject in alleyways and they die in alleyways. Like... I saw a quote, and I really wish I could remember who it was by, um, but kind of expressing that whenever someone uh, speaks about not wanting, say, a safe injecting room, they should be forced to put on the end of that. And that's why I think people should die alone in an alleyway. So I just don't want it in my backyard. And that's why I think people should die alone in an alleyway. Like people should be forced to acknowledge Hmm. that that for that population, that results in death, Mm. you know, to lots of different harms, but to that one. And to say that you have problems with harm reduction is to say that it's acceptable to you that a person dies because they use substances, that um, it's not important to you that a person lives. That's, you know, (laughs) that's clearly not something that we should have that view on but that's the reality of being kind of like uncomfortable with harm reduction of saying things like um I'm not gonna bring a you know like I'm not gonna bring a yellow bin which is what our like um sharp spins are here not gonna bring a sharp spin to that person's house because I don't want to encourage substance use like is saying I you know like it's fine with me if they have like used needles in their house and someone steps on one, that's fine with me. You know, like mm. people need to confront what that is that they're saying. Mm. When the, you know, the, I, like I've worked with people that were heavy substance users. Um, one in particular I, I can think of off the top of my head would use anything and anything they could get their hands on. Uh, and... What harm minimization or harm reduction, whichever term you want to use, was one of the sort of main things that we looked at when I started working with this person. Uh, so it was more for for them. It was like getting access to clean needles because there was a lot of um, friends that would come over to their place to use because they had their own place, and it was like you know they could get out of the house from their families and go and use at this person's house. Um, <laughs> So it it actually ended up quite interesting in that that person ended up linking in with to get clean needles and that sort of stuff so well that he was then essentially keeping a stock at home for other people that came around. So it was almost started doing harm minimization for their friends as Mm -hmm. well, which was, you know, awesome on terms of for us from a clinical point of view because... I can't imagine how many times, you know, there was four or five people there and just passed a needle around because that was only the one they had and everyone wanted, you know, have a hit of whatever Mm. they were were using, that kind of thing. Um, But harm minimization was something that, like, I wasn't, I never said to that person, like, you have to stop. And he usually used, but he was completely honest with what he was using. He would tell me. He's like, yeah, on the weekend I had a bit of this and a bit of that. And I'm like, okay. And, you know, how was anyone else over? We have conversations about it. I learned so much about drug use from that person. Uh, mm. But what the, the, I guess from a health KPI 
standpoint for the, I don't know, two years or however long I was working with that person, had a, it was something like 500% reduction in hospitalizations um, for mental health, like into the acute unit. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think had one hospitalization, or not hospitalization, but one ED visit, emergency department visit, and that was for something completely unrelated where previously they were in there every you know, few weeks for infections and all sorts of stuff. Um, and people, like I've, I've talked about that person with students as example of, you know, this is how you can work with people. And there's still people that can't get their head around, but, you know, was he ever high when you were there? I'm like, sometimes. <laughs> like, well, do you just leave or what do you do? Well, I'm like, well, I think this is an example of where, and I use this as a highlight for my students, this is an example where you need to be, one, yes, conscious of your safety. So if there was any danger that I suspected to myself, I'd be out of there. Like, I'm not there to get hurt or anything like that. And it, honestly, it probably wouldn't have been from that person. It would have been someone else that was staying there that posed any risk. Um, but it was an example of you need to be, one, aware of your perceptions of this stuff and you need to be able to put them aside so you can work with someone if that if that perception is opposing so yes i don't Mm. i don't condone substance use i don't think it's healthy but that's not gonna stop me i'm not gonna impose my value system on another person because that's Mm. not gonna help anyone it's not gonna help you it's not gonna help them uh, if I had done that with that person, for example, they would have just gone, ah, screw you. And that would have been it, like relationship dead. We would have made no progress. Mm. They would have still, you know, been frequently in hospital, probably with all kinds of whatever they might have caught from sharing needles, etc. So to me, even though, yes, that person's still using substances from a health perspective, that's a massive win. And from their perspective, mm. like they're... They were so stoked not to be in hospital so much because they hated it, as I'm sure most people would. Yeah. Yeah, and it's that engagement stuff, right? Hmm. Like that's that's what we're meant to do is to meet people where they're at and try and understand a person and, and who they are and what they want. That's not always going to be what we would want. That's the nature of it. Um, and I think... I think that gets hard for people once they start thinking of people as cases. Mm. So, um, you know, like if your case is this and your case has this problem, you will tend to try and fix that. If it's not a case, if it's a person, you'll tend to try and work with them and say, you know, like how can I help you? What what can we do? And it is about helping because, you know, when you said, that you'd learned lots about substance use from that person. When I was in the mental health substance use unit, the information I was getting about harm reduction was coming from, you know, our staff specialists, from our nursing people, from social work, from psychology, and also from consumers who Mm -hmm. were teaching me heaps, really generous with that, really open to do that. And peers, people who use substances, have been doing that work for years. This is not new stuff. Like um, I subscribe to Harm Reduction Victoria's magazine, which is called WAC, um, which is amazing. And it's like it's for people made, I think originally made for people who 
use substances intravenously, but I think it's fairly generalised now. Um, but they've been doing this work. They've been sharing, like, how do you, like, use ice whatever and stay safe for much longer than you know most of us have been practicing for longer than I've been alive you know like communities have already been doing this work so like that's work that they're trying really hard to do and we can have this role in supporting that and in finding out what what's evidence-based what's true so all of the stuff about people's personal feelings aside it's just evidence-based practice. Mm. You want people, if you want people to reach abstinence, and that's not something I'm invested in, but some people that is really important and they think that people should be abstinent and, you know, like they're aiming for that kind of gold standard of health. If you want that, you need people not to die first. That's a good start. So, you know, why don't we give them that opportunity? Why don't we say it's safe for you, for you to swallow ice than it is for you to smoke it? Like, why don't we just check if people know when they leave hospital that they're at a much higher risk of overdose from opioids? Why don't we just check in about that stuff? I don't know why not. No, no, <laughs> I, no. want, I want you to tell me, I guess. <laughs> Mate, if I knew, I would be in a mansion or something by now. Um, <laughs> no, it's, it's, it's interesting and I think, uh, to me, it always came back to that that concept of that dark side of occupation, because it was yeah. one of the things that I found throughout my career was everyone I worked with that was using illicit substances or even prescribed substances, just using them wrong. The main issue for them was never the substance itself. It was always, or even the main reason for using was very rarely the substance itself. Um, like I've worked with people that use substances because it was the only way they felt they could make social connections with their like friends. Um, mm. I've worked with, you know, you, you get all the typical things that you see on TV, like, oh, they're using it to escape and that kind of thing. Again, I wasn't as common as it probably seems like on TV. The main, mm. the main reason I, the, with the people I worked with, and maybe it was just the, the people that I was around was, social needs and that kind of thing um, or self-medication for sort of mitigating other symptoms, usually mental health symptoms. So I had a lot of people that would use to, uh, you know, for example, stop the voices, something like that. So they were mm-hmm. using to try and hide something else rather than – so like if you were working with that person – your intervention might be nothing to do with the substances. It might be to do with how does how do you manage voices, which has got nothing mm. to do with substances. But what you'll find is if you work on those things, generally, if that's the reason why they're using, they're going to use less and maybe even stop. Um, mm. I've worked with people, like if with the social example, where if you show them or explore other occupations where they can get that social need met, then if that's the one sort of main reason that they're using substances, then there's no reason to use it. People mm. people use substances in general because it's filling a need. They don't just do it for shits. No one does anything just for something to do. Well, actually, that's a lie. I'm sure there is Yeah, that I mean, use. I guess... I guess one of the reasons is that it's fun, yeah. you know, like uh, 
but that's filling that's a, a need. valid reason yeah, yeah yeah that's a really valid reason it's that rat park stuff you know the yeah i mean i assume everyone knows that the you know the rats and they either had a i would say an occupation free they talk about um a low socialization kind of space but it was you know, socially, socially so deprived the, i think is what they called it yeah i would say occupationally deprived is yeah. that the right language under justice Deprived? Deprived. Yeah, occupation. There's a better term, right? Deprived. Yeah. Yep. So, you know, rats in a occupationally deprived setting tended to use the substance use, you know, kind of like um, analog more than the ones who had like cool wheels and stuff. Mm, other rats. And lots and... of other rats and sex and stuff. So even if the goal is abstinence and lots of people I work with do have a goal of abstinence like a lot of people actually would really like to achieve that not certainly not everyone but um particularly in the work that I do in court diversion where people have you know kind of fears about what the justice outcomes will be for them often they do want to achieve that but even in that space where it's about abstinence I don't do a lot of work on what your drug use is. Hmm. So most of my work is what's your goals? Hmm. What would you like to achieve? If substance use is in the way of that, well, then we probably need to cut that back a little. But it's mostly about building someone's life up more, about giving them things to do, making sure they're safe, and then, you know, like letting life kind of build around them so that they have a satisfying life. So I say to everyone, like I'm not, I'm not in the business of telling you what to do. I'm just in the business of trying to help you have a good life. Like mm. I do not care if you use substances every day for the rest of your life. I want you to have a good life. Like I care about that. Mm. And I do like, I, you know, it wouldn't work if I didn't mean it. No. <laughs> I wouldn't suggest people say it if that's not what they care about, but I do. And so usually that helps, you know, people trust that. But even even in your example, like with the justice thing, I'd almost I'd be, I'd be very curious to see whether or not people who wanted abstinence in that instance wanted it because of the substance, or they wanted it because they don't want to keep ending up within the justice system. Like that's what I was yeah. sort of thinking. Like <clears throat> the the reasons why people want to get off, even if it is like I want to get off this drug, it's very rarely because of the drug itself. It's like, oh, no, 100%. I don't like this anymore. Or well, that does happen, but it's so much rarer. There's usually some external motivation from the substance itself or the effects of the substance itself that is what drives people to, uh, you know, want to get off it. And we see that in Australia anyway with the change. I've spoken about this before with the change in the public health message around quitting smoking. It used to be sort of back mm. in the 80s, there was the TV ad, and I'll probably try and find it and throw it in the show notes, TV ad with the Grim Reaper, like bowling people over. I know mm-hmm. oh, that was AIDS. I think I've had that mistake before. Mm. But there was, there was like very much like you, you smoke, you're going to die kind of message. Whereas now, yeah. recently in the last sort of maybe five years, the message has been more around social exclusion in that, yes, you're not allowed to smoke in these places and it'll show images of like, their friends laughing and having fun over here and they can't join in because they're outside having to have a smoke. Uh, and the, the message has been more around uh, smoking causing a disconnect. So like 
dropping out your connections as opposed to this is actually going to kill you, which, you know, that hasn't changed. Smoking's still going to kill you if you keep doing it. But what's, from a psychology point of view, what I've been reading is that that's not a strong enough message anymore to actually get people to stop. Yes, when those sort of smoking messages and they put the pictures all over cigarette packets of the, the health effects, yes, there was mm-hmm. a dramatic that reduction. That are oh, just all of the foot. Oh. Anyway. Mm, I was um, a smoker when that started. Oh, really? Did it work? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so, no. yes, there was a dr- – But well, it did make me buy a special packet to put over my smokes. Well, there you go. And that's, that's, that's the <laughs> thing. Like, there was a dramatic reduction in smoking when those ads came out. But at the same time, the price of cigarettes went up exponentially. So how do you tell what's what? And then since the price has been more steady-ish, uh, that reduction hasn't – it hasn't uh, kept producing at the same rate. So this new, uh, I guess, take on public health of actually saying like, not this is how it's going to impact your health, but how it's going to impact your life seems to be the current thing for health promotion. And I see that as such an amazing metaphor of how OT fits into mm-hmm. the health like spectrum as a whole. Because all of a sudden... Even public health is looking at, well, they're not just looking at health, they're looking at your well-being, which isn't just health. It's, you know, your social connections and fun and everything else all tied into one. So there's other professions mm. that have realized what we've known for ages and we still are struggling to get our head around it in some some cases, which is frustrating. Mm. But that's a whole nother. Yeah, it's what you do. <laughs> it's what you, you know, it's what you're, you do or are prevented from doing like that's our that's our basic stuff I think we get lost in it sometimes and we forget you know if we're thinking about a message of health or um that kind of stuff that really what we do is allow people to I mean sorry to sound like I'm in first year uni but to do the things they want and (laughs) need to do you know like that's still that's still what we're doing that's right. Sam was my first year <laughs> lecturer. I know. I and know she things. Did make us all practice what we were going to say about what OT was a lot. Oh, I love it. That's awesome. And she, you know, she actually a lot of the stuff around um, kind of harm reduction. I will say, Sam was really good about including. You know, like. Um, stopping people from talking about compliance and oh. acknowledging that our <laughs> our jobs are about what people want to do, that it's not, you know, it's not like how many times you want someone to take a shower, it's how many times they need to. Like I think having that in my um, first year was really valuable. But like if I, I don't want Sam to know that I'm talking well about her because, <laughs> oh. you know, I don't want her to get a big head. So let's hope she doesn't listen. That's right. I'll tell her. That's fine. <laughs> um, the other, one of the other sort of, I guess, theories around substance use, and then obviously we kind of, I kind of alluded to it with that public health campaign, was that connection, social connection, is a massive uh, indicator or proponent of you know substance use. So, mm-hmm. and I've seen links with other things as well, like mental illness and that kind of thing, but people are more likely to use if they have a low social connection 
which, which yep. I guess would probably have to be individualized, so lower than they need. Um, yeah. And obviously, and vice versa, if they're having that need met social connection-wise, then they're less likely to use substances. Is there any sort of truth to that or am I making that up? I don't know. <laughs> I mean, I, I'm not an, like, I'm not an expert, you know, like I think that feels true, but I don't, I don't know all the research. I know what I see in practice and I know what I read, but um, I think psychologies like suggest that that's true. Um, I try to stay out of reasons why a lot. So I try to stay focused on what's next and Mm -hmm. what the goals are. So I probably don't have the background in the whys it started um, because every person I meet has such a different answer, Mm. you know, like uh, the reasons that people start and continue to use substances are so individual, like, you know, why is it that I'm going to start my day with coffee and then end tonight with an espresso martini? Like, you know, it's... Because Friday. <laughs> yes, because Friday, <laughs> even though I am on holidays. But, you know, you know like it is just so different for all of us. Um, and I think the thing that I was thinking about as we were talking about, like, how you support people is that an, an OT and that kind of like Sam and first year and all those things is that for a lot of OTs who are working in physical health, I know that this feels like it's outside of their sphere, but I also know that I learned about harm reduction policies really from watching physical health OTs. So from going to people's houses on pracs when I had physical pracs that I hated um, and watching people refuse, outright refuse to take up the rugs that were trip hazards. You know, like they were not going to use the four-wheeled walker because their clothes were all over it. You know, that classic physical OT Mm. stuff. The OTs I saw did not throw their hands up and say, you know what, you're doing the wrong thing and you're very bad and I'm leaving. They said, okay, so (laughs) you're not taking up the rugs. Maybe we could tape them down I guess you know they just did that work and it's the same stuff you know like you didn't have a moral objection to this nice old lady who wouldn't pick up her rugs yeah it's just the same you know like you're just going to work around it if you if you want to because I wondered that's 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 a really good point I've never actually considered that because I can totally relate to that from my placements in physical health um, it's very much that sort of, I guess, triaging of the levels of intervention, but then negotiating which which level the the person's willing to accept or try or or whatnot. Mm. So, um, I do wonder whether or not, because often when you're looking at harm minimization or harm reduction in the research, it's very much focused on drugs or very much focused mm. on substances, but. I wonder how much carryover there is to like anything else, like someone who, you know, eats too much or, you know, something else that they might sort of, you can have addictive, like gambling maybe, that you can have addictive behaviors that aren't necessarily anything to do with substances. Like I'm addicted to playing Xbox at the moment, Um, probably more due to COVID, but 
like that's an addictive. Uh-huh. I have an addictive personality. I find something and I latch onto it, and that's it. I'm doing nothing else for two weeks until I get over it. Um, yeah, I'm very very familiar with being sort of hyper focused on individual things for for periods of time where I can't see, I can't get out of that sort of not a rut, but I can't get out of that that focus. And I wonder how much that I guess harm minimization theory or process would also benefit people with me, for example, um, that uh, are going through a similar thing, but just with something that's not a substance, whether it would still hold up. Yeah. So look, I'm part way through a master's on addictive behaviors. So I'm in that space where I think that I know things, but I don't really, do you know what I mean? Like that's the, that's the best place to be in for a podcast. <laughs> But what I, <laughs> what I will say is that that stuff is process, kind of the language around it currently is process addictions. Mm-hmm. So um, the stuff that it doesn't have a physical ad- addiction mm-hmm. or dependency, um, it, there is stuff that you can have addictive behaviour around and that's kind of termed process addiction where you kind of get that hit from it, you know, like that brain light up. Yep. but you're not necessarily dependent. So you're gaming or like, you know, like I get in things where I like um, actually need to draw constantly or, you know, like the internet or whatever. So absolutely harm reduction works in that space Mm -hmm. because it's a, such a simple, such a simple thing to do, but also um, harm reduction policies aren't just about substance use. So seatbelts are a harm reduction and acknowledged harm reduction policy and a commonly used Example, helmets. Yes, um, there's some Heroes wear dental helmets. work that I can't like remember. Oh, but like fluoride? you know, there's fluoride yeah, fluoride in the water. In the water. Yeah. Yes, like this is all harm reduction work, like public health and harm reduction work, mm. where we do not yell at a person to stop doing the thing, mm. but instead work with what people are going to do is is harm reduction. Um, and we know it's effective. Like seatbelts are pretty good, right? Like, well, and that, that's, that's, that's the example. Like if you were going to do the uh, try and do an abstinence model of people who die in motor vehicle accidents, you'd ban motor vehicles. Yeah, 100%. Whereas, you know, we as a society, I think, will generally agree we can't do that because it'll take us a week mm-hmm. to get anywhere. Um, <laughs> so this is like a very well-accepted you're right, a very well-accepted harm minimization strategy in that, yes, there is mountains of evidence that say that the chance of survival in a motor vehicle accident if you're wearing a seatbelt is massively higher than if you're not wearing one. Mm. And mm. people just accept that. And I think that's really interesting, like highlighting these examples of stuff that people are doing that's harm minimization that they've never even considered when it's the same process when you're looking at it with substances, yeah. it's just the substance that's different and that's where people get hung up. Yeah, like masks currently. Like um, I've been enjoying talking to my clients about how masks are a harm reduction policy and about how mainstream like people are, are learning about harm reduction for the first time and it's new for them. We need to give them a little time to get used to the idea that that my clients already know about, like that they're on top of this stuff. Yeah. And that's the interesting thing is, like obviously 
from a, an outsider perspective, like I'm working from home, I don't go out very often and very thin on the ground cases up this way anyway. Mm. So we're not currently mandated to wear masks or anything like that. Like Victoria, I think, and May, I don't know if you guys are, are you? We're just encouraged Encouraged, to. Victoria, they uh, have to wear them if they go outside. We don't have any ruling like that up in Queensland at the moment. Um, But it's been interesting watching the different arguments for and against. And I think that the main argument that I've seen people making for not wearing masks is it's not going to, it seems to be rooted in that abstinence model in that wearing a mask isn't going to get rid of it. I'm like, well, no, (laughs) probably not. Well, it's not probably. It's definitely not going to get rid of COVID. But it's going to minimize the transmission risk on a population basis. And there's a chance that you can wear a mask and you'll still get it because the Mm. mask isn't the only way that, you know, things get onto your face. Like you scratch your nose, you've touched a railing. Like there's a thousand other things or people just not using a mask correctly. But... Even using it incorrectly, that still reduces the risk. It mm-hmm. still reduces, reduces, not eliminates. Exactly. That's, so, that's all we're trying to do is make it a little bit better. I, I do wonder whether actually pointing out this, oh, this has got my brain rolling now. I do wonder <laughs> whether like actually highlighting these instances that people are using harm minimization just in their daily lives might actually help them comprehend how it works sort of in a drug and alcohol setting. Just because it's then, like you said, your your clients are very familiar with that process. So then taking that concept and applying it to masks instead of, you know, heroin uh, mm-hmm. is a much easier thing. Because uh, I was, obviously, I was, I'm, so we spoke earlier, I was, I'm doing some curriculum work at the moment. And I was looking at uh, essentially learning styles. And, you know, one of the, the quotes that I was reading was sort of like, one of the things that we're learnt, how we learn, like from how you know, human's cognition is, is coded is we attach new things to stuff that we already know, which, you know, as an OT, mm. we know that's not rocket science. We get that concept. This is the same thing. I think if we make people aware that, hey, guys, you already know this concept. Like this is, like, this is an example, like belts, mm. helmets, masks, whatever it is, you already know this concept. We're just taking this mm. concept and applying it to this situation over here. I, yep. I feel like just even on a, a learning theory point of view, that's probably a better way to go on terms of getting yep. more people comfortable with harm minimization in a drug and alcohol setting. Mm. I Yeah, I thought a lot about like the barriers. Um, and the, the only thing I could think of that people say to me and look we surround ourselves with people who are like us so you know like I'm largely surrounded by people who believe in you know health equity and are passionate about that but the question that I get sometimes when I offer people a bit of peer supervision around this stuff is about whether it might increase people's substance use so um you know I, we kind of briefly spoke about, you know, the idea that it's encouraging, but I guess like I do want to very clearly say that there's no evidence, none, that harm reduction increases substance use at all. Um, There's evidence that it actually decreases, but, you know, that's shaky. But that's the only thing that I can really think of that makes people 
uncomfortable is kind of they feel like they're being permissive or that they're encouraging substance use. Um, that, that That's it for me, like, yeah, that I, I can see. I do wonder even, so like if you were, as an example, if we were to, in Australia, completely legalise marijuana, I do think mm-hmm. that in that very initial stage there might be a small increase, not a small, it might even mm. be a large increase, who knows. There might be an increase in total number of people that use. But what you're going to find is, uh, and this is like I've read some of the evidence uh, around places that have decriminalized or legalized things and looked at the trends, and they found essentially that if it's readily accessible, for some people that's makes it less enticing. Mm. Like it's if you can get it anywhere. Like there's a lot of people, alcohol use is decreasing not necessarily mm. like worldwide not necessarily in australia i'm not sure exactly what the australian stats are because we've got a strange culture around that but worldwide it is decreasing because it's so readily accessible it's it's there and people's knowledge around its use and that sort of thing it's not like this mysterious Oh, I wonder what this does or what this feels like thing anymore. Like, yes, young people, when they first become of legal age to drink in whatever country you're in, it is that. It's that, oh, you know, I've seen this in movies or I wonder what this feels like or is this going to be good, whatever. So there's an increase during that age group, but after a while it decreases again. And I do think the same thing would happen if you were to legalize something that's currently not legal. And there's there's been evidence, I don't know, and this might be controversial, but I don't know if you've read the book by Johanna, Johan Hari. Uh, no, I keep, I've seen it. Like, it's on my list, but yeah. I haven't read it yet. So he, so the reason I say it's controversial is he's not actually a clinician of any kind. He's a journalist. But he's mm-hmm. gone through all the research. He's visited a lot of the, the researchers and interviewed them around the processes that they did. And he presents a lot of the evidence in a much easier to read form than it is taking in like journal articles. Um, But a lot of his, uh, I guess, conclusions from all of the stuff that he's looked at is that overall um, there is a reduction in use of substances when they're readily accessible. And the benefit of things being readily accessible is then you can put some governance in them so that you know what you're actually getting. Like if you buy marijuana on the street, you don't necessarily 100% know what you're getting. If you go and buy a bottle of bourbon or something, you can read on the label. You know exactly what's in there. It's government regulated. And his argument Mm. is that that is another, again, another harm minimization thing because people know like, if I measure 30 mils of that, that's one standard drink. This is how much of that's blah, blah, blah. I know how many standard drinks affects me this much, et cetera, et cetera. Whereas something that you buy off the street, doesn't matter what drug it is, it could be made in someone's bathroom. Who knows? Um, you don't know how it's going to affect you each time. Mm. So it's, he argues that that's another harm minimization strategy in that being able to regulate it and sort of put some governance in around its sale and strength and all that sort of stuff. Yeah, I think we're kind of all eagerly awaiting to see the outcomes of different models where kind of government has been involved, where communities have been involved. So there's like all these different 
models emerging now about how kind of decriminalisation and or legalisation happen. Um, I'm not across all the current evidence, mm. but like my impression is we're kind of waiting to see what works um, if we were to do it where we are, what what would work there, how it would apply to different classes of drugs. Um, I, you know, like it's obviously it's a pretty big question mm. um, and like I don't know what the answer is, but I certainly know that like where we bring that occupation into light instead of dark, we tend to have of better outcomes. So whether that's on a government level or an individual mm. level, I think that we we see a better outcome for our individuals and for our communities where we kind of do shine a light on the, I guess, the other side of the moon to yeah, use yeah. that the um, light dark side. side. Of yeah, yeah. Like, you know, there's, there's not really a reason why it needs to remain yeah. On the dark side, unless I am misinterpreting how no, no. that metaphor works in the no, literature. And, but, you know, like I, I don't know that we need to keep those um, occupations on the dark side. I don't mm. know that we need to keep them without light. Because I know another example I just remembered uh, and probably mainly from my own experience and talking with the, the drug and alcohol clinicians up where I was working up here um, was the number of people that would end up using methamphetamine as opposed to marijuana. And one of the big reasons they suspect for that is, one, police are cracking down on trafficking, like actually moving product around. Mm-hmm. Australia is a big place. There's big spaces in between towns sometimes. So often moving something like marijuana is the only way to sell large amounts of it. Because mm-hmm. that's being cracked down on and meth is so easily made, it's actually, or well, up here anyway, had a cheaper street value than marijuana. So it was cheaper to get meth than it was to get marijuana, which meant that a lot of people mm. that we were working with were using that instead, which comes with it just based on the, the substance itself with a whole host of much increased health risk factors as compared to mm. marijuana. Um, mm-hmm. The other sort of patterns like that that I've, I've heard about are that uh, some of the harder drugs like cocaine and that kind of stuff, more readily available in cities that have international airports. So my city, mm-hmm. Townsville, we don't have an international, well, technically we do now, but it's not really an international airport. Uh, four hours north of us in Cairns, they do a lot more of those sort of harder drugs uh, used in Cairns than there are in Townsville. There's only a four-hour drive difference or like an hour flight difference. You know, mm. I think it's about 45-minute flights. So it's a waste of time getting on the plane. But there's like <laughs> things like that where you can actually track usage and that sort of stuff based on sort of social, uh, like contextual factors. Yeah. Newcastle, um, where I am, has a much higher... Uh, amount of methamphetamine use than Sydney. So we run a similar program. Like um, the the two services that I work in actually have kind of sisters in various places because they're New South Wales, New New South Wales, um, they're like health (laughs) programs. So like we see in our stats that say in terms of amphetamine use, Coke much higher in Sydney. Mm. Um, Newcastle, which is a less 
rich area, um, which has much more people who fall lower on the scale of economics, much more methamphetamine. Like it, it's, it, it's very dependent. Um, my impression from my colleagues in Melbourne, when I last lived in Melbourne, um, like methamphetamine was king. And my impression is that there's a lot more opioid use now than there has been in a long time. So we kind of see trends and it's um, like dependent on what's happening in our communities. It's, you know, like not an across the board thing. So it's not really about the substance. Like mm. it's it's not really that like, you know, I lo- know the media loves it like, methamphetamine epidemic you know like I know that they love that but it's not really about the specific substance it's Mm. about like the ways that people use why people use how people use where they are living you know like their access that kind of thing um you know and and what harms they're likely to experience because of that it's so so variable Mm. and we've seen that a bit you know in covid access has been more difficult for people. Um, people's, so one of the big overdose risks is that you buy from various sources or from, you know, not your standard source. Um, and we're seeing a lot more of that, like because people can't necessarily get on from their normal person. They can't necessarily access them, you know, where we've got limits to how far you can travel. Um Mm. You know, and also people, you know, having periods of abstinence means that when they do use again, their tolerance is dropped. So we're seeing kind of abstinence in lockdowns and stuff like, um, and then big spikes in use. So um, I know particularly for people who are working where there's a lot of opioid use, that that's a big and scary concern and a really good reason to have naloxone on your person. And a lot of the opioid use that I saw in my career wasn't like usually illicit substance. A lot of it was prescription. Yeah, yeah. I believe in, that's in still cases, the leading. In some cases, use. that's easier to get. In a lot of cases, yeah, it's I easier think to get. The last time I looked at the stats, and I could be wrong because I don't, I'm not a person who keeps the charts in my brain. <laughs> um, Last time I looked, overdose death in Australia was highest in prescription opioids. Um, and then I think it may have been benzos next, but I'll probably regret saying that. I'll look at the table later and I'll be like, oh, so wrong. But certainly it's it's significant yeah. like how much risk there is associated and who the person we picture when we talk about substance use is might not be accurate i'm like most people when you think of substance use they're picturing like some homeless dude under a bridge with a needle sort of thing when a lot of the people i've worked with are you know functioning very well they're running businesses they're working in offices and yeah they've got they're using substances and it's affecting them somehow, but it's not the typical image, I think, and I think a lot of that's probably due to Hollywood, but I think Mm. it's not the typical image that people might have who aren't in this, working in this space, who might have of people who use substances. Yeah. Yeah, and I guess even if you're working with a person who might, like, kind of fit some of those Mm. stereotypes, um, 
you know, a person isn't a stereotype. So like, even if they fit, you know, like all of those descriptive factors, and again, like kind of returning to that idea of like cases, like if they're a case study, maybe they fit those things. But Mm. like in person, if it's me, you know, like I'm, I experience all this disadvantage, but also I'm like Karina who likes dogs and llamas, you know, like I, yeah. I mean, that's people don't know that there's a painting of rats behind me. There's a, I would say it's more of a collage of rats. There are just yeah, it, it's a painting by an artist called Sophia Fleck, and it's very beautiful. And she's obviously a big rat fan, so there you go. I don't know if she is or I, if she's just a bright colour like fan. I've never seen a different rat painting that she's done. That's... But people can feel free to go. Yeah, <laughs> check her out. Yeah. We'll shout her out. Yeah. So, yeah, it's like, uh, you know, you can't just reduce people to that that stuff. Like, yeah. Some of the absolute nicest people I've ever met in my life have been living on the street. And some of yeah. the most, well, I won't use a cuss word, but some of the people, the complete opposite of that, I've I've worked with or like and they've been working in like corporate jobs or you know owning their own businesses or, or things that we would uh, traditionally perceive as like super successful and I'm like that doesn't make you a, yeah uh, like one a good person or two it doesn't actually mean that you are successful because quite often those people their issues are much more complex than the people that I've worked with that are, say, you know, living on the street who are, I don't know, they seem to be much, in my experience, they seem to be much more amenable to help or even just having a conversation. Uh, Yeah, those Mm. those stereotypes don't often hold up in my experience. Yeah, I mean, often when you talk to people about the problems that they're having at work, um, it's not usually the client work, is it? (laughs) You know, like people aren't usually like, oh man, my clients, they're like, that workplace, I swear to God, <laughs> like it's not, it's not so much about, you know, um, the populations with whom we work in a client clinician space. No, no, that's, uh, there are many issues in health and a lot of them are health, apparently. <laughs> <laughs> What else do we need to cover? What else haven't we covered? I mean, you're the conversation boss. Apparently, I'm failing as a boss. I think my brain's shutting down. It's been a big week. I should have got that, Jen. Maybe that would have helped. You should have. It's all right. Uh, what else do you want to go over? I mean, I I don't have anything that I need to. Oh, yeah, I mean, need I think. To. I don't think it's that complex a topic. Do you know what I mean? Like, no, but I'm that's like, why that I think seems like. That's why it amazes <laughs> me that people still can't get their head around it. Because to me, again, to the same, to me, it's like, this just makes sense. This seems really simple. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Good. It shouldn't, it shouldn't be this hard to get people to understand this. I don't get it. Yeah, I mean, maybe it's not. Like, maybe I just think that people aren't doing this work and they are. Um, maybe they're just not talking about the work. I guess the the 
other thing is that maybe people don't know where to access that information. So um, given the populations who are OTs, like I said before, you know, like it's a lot of middle-class people who maybe don't have those experiences. I myself had a pretty wild youth, so I'm, I'm cool, I'm fine. I've got some basic <laughs> background knowledge. Yeah. Um, but I am aware that a lot of OTs are... Um, people who are really interested in helping people but have, you know, come straight from school into uni and straight from uni into their first job and maybe they're like, I don't actually know any of this stuff and I don't know where to find the information. So maybe that's part of it. Um, I found, so I made a, we had a group in the inpatient unit which was about providing that kind of information about safer sex and safer substance use. Um, and I worked with a really awesome nurse and we turned it into a game. So we turned it into like a card game called Safer um, because so OT, but she was like one of those nurses who should have been an OT, like just was like, how can we put more activities in it and make it more fun? Like and that ended up being our most beloved part of the week. Like we loved it. <laughs> Clients loved it. We laughed so much in that group. Like, But I think that made it easier when I started giving that to people and talking to people about it because they had a like almost like a script they had the answers like so questions were things like um in Australia do do police need to attend when there's an ambulance call for an overdose true or false then everyone would vote when it gets a lolly you know how lollies work you know inpatient unit you got to bring a bribe <laughs> um it's like cooking groups are always stuff, killer Yes, exactly. <laughs> so like that stuff, having like the information available to people, I think makes it a little easier because there isn't necessarily like a list of this stuff. Like yeah. I understand that people don't learn at uni whether people should smoke or inject ice. I get that. I think that it would be cool if they did. Yeah. And if unis would like to pay me to come and talk to people about that, I'd love to do. New career. But, you know, <laughs> yeah, that's a Harm dream. reduction consulting. Um, yeah. But so I think that's maybe the other barrier. Um, and I'm not sure what the answer is about that, except that, you know, people can do what I did, which is do some searching, read the literature. <laughs> well, is there, do you know of any, like, good sort of, I mean, from for me, uh, from a theoretical point of view, the dark side occupation, getting your head around that, is yep. so valuable. Uh, I just feel like that will help you conceptualize why OT fits with working with populations like that so well and why it's 100% our job to be in that space. Uh, so from a theoretical point of view, I think that's really a, a great starting point. Do you have any either theoretical or any sort of resources that you know that are out there that you think are really good obviously there's this you know this cool instagram account that's harm reduction underscore ot <laughs> you can go and check that out there's a fair bit of information on there yeah. so definitely check that out if you're interested but do you know of any others so i might uh find a way to send to you some links there's some yeah. work around substance use as an occupation so there's i don't have names because there's quite a few people who have done work in that space yep. who are OTs um, and who I've referred to lots in trying to get people to think about why do people use substances and why is it important. 
Um, there are OTs doing some of that work. There's um, a recent grad in the States called Tawny Malgram, and I hope that I have said her name right because I only know her from the internet. But I know she did her, like, capstone work on harm reduction in OT, and she has a... Um, like a poster that you can Google. She actually is also the person who set up a occupational therapy and harm reduction Facebook group that she's taken a break for from and I now mod. But um, there's certainly OTs who are interested in that work. Um, there's OTs who are working in substance use, like I think her name is Michelle Taylor, who's an OT at Insight in Queensland. Uh, I know um, Michelle, I used to work with her. Yeah, well, she's really cool. Well, she used to be my, because I used to work in Brisbane. She was our head of OT when I was there. Right. So she was nice enough to have a chat with me recently about some of the work about sensory work in substance use and she's developed tools. And I would really like suggest if people are kind, kind of starting to think about how they might work in that space, looking at her work, it's so good. It's so accessible. Um. And then if you're looking for like harm reduction information or substance use specific stuff, I only know Australian sites because that's my context. Um, Your room is good for young people. That's a website. The Pennington, yeah. Yeah. And the Pennington Institute, which also has um, a website, has heaps of great information, particularly around overdose prevention. It is... International Overdose Prevention Day in, I think, two weeks. Well, maybe not by the time people hear this, on the 31st of August, I think. Um, and Pennington has really, really great resources about particularly overdose but somewhat about um, safer use. If you are just looking to learn what different drug classes are, you could also look at Erowid, which is E-R-O-W-I-D, I think, um, which is like a peer run space so maybe your work computer might block it but <laughs> your room certainly um people will be phone, able to look at that yeah. <laughs> or or pennington um and they have kind of printable sheets so at the very least you can be people can be reading that information and handing it to their clients so even if you don't know about preventing overdose if that's the kind of space we're working in you can find out where to get the info and give it to people. You know, even if you're working in an inpatient environment, it takes no time. I know this because I did it very regularly. It takes no time <laughs> to hit print. And on people, on when you catch people, when the doctors have sneakily discharged them and you didn't know they were going to, to hand them that thing on their way out the quite door. <laughs> yeah. What are you doing standing at the door with your bags? Oh, you're going. Oh, okay. I didn't know that. Oh, I thought we were going to. Yeah. Okay, never mind. Yeah. <laughs> you come in in the morning, you've got all your things set up for <laughs> someone. They're gone. <laughs> Bye. Oh. All the best. <laughs> Reminiscing about a cute minute. Yeah, don't miss the impatient. No. <laughs> thing, like, I just literally just Googled substance use and occupational therapy and the number of articles. Again. There's a whole journal called the Journal of Substance Use Treatment. Uh, there's yes. tons of articles. There's one, one of my previous guests, Ginny Stofel. There's an article from her oh, uh, yes. in here about the role of occupational therapy in the treatment of substance abuse. Uh, that was from 2004, but there's so much out there, uh, from all different organizations as well. And you, some of these articles aren't 
in OT related journals. They're in psychology journals and other areas that you're gonna have to branch out. I know, shock horror. Mm. So what's it a frame of reference? Is that the I mean, like always at uni it was like it's this model and this frame of reference and I was always like a little bit like I don't I don't know. This is just the reference I gave you. <laughs> this is the model, but this is the lens that it's looking through. Yeah, sure. Uh, If you're in America, OTA has their own recovery with purpose, OT and drug and alcohol abuse uh, stuff on their website. So many resources. So uh, I'll throw links to all of that stuff you just mentioned for people in the show notes. But also Google is your friend. You will find so much stuff. There's so much out there that I just think people... I don't know. I think it's almost a topic that they avoid looking at because probably because of that initial values conflict, but people need to get past that if they want to be effective therapists anyway. So Yeah, yeah. I don't imagine even in, I don't know because I haven't worked in this setting, but I'm sure even if you were working in home mods that there are people whose values are very different from yours about modifications you're doing in the house like I imagine that you I I know that you can't just input the Australian standards every time you know like I know that you have to take a person into account I don't know it you know in practice because I literally have no idea what you guys are doing out there in home what's land but seems cool and I'm sure there's moral conflicts or values conflicts there as much as there is anywhere or even just from the point that rails look hideous people don't want them in their bathroom so uh, yeah why like, do why, they look why so can't ugly? someone make a good looking handrail how hard is that yeah are people making good looking handrails no i've never seen one can you get the per- can you get someone to do it and then have them on I the might... show and then they can tell us about how to make a beautiful modded bathroom I need and okay if anyone's listening i need a graphic designer an architect and mm-hmm. Someone who can build it. I don't know what that mm-hmm. would be. And that's where the money is. Yeah. And then mm. I'll just sit back and watch as the OT. Yeah, go, consultancy. Yes, that actually looks mm, good. good. <laughs> I don't like that one. Try again. Let's have a look at this one. <laughs> Not pretty. It's going to be my business model. We yeah, got, great. We got this. I look forward to you making all that money. You and me both. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. Well, yeah. Uh Thanks so much for for coming in. Where can people find you if they want to track down some of your stuff? I know I mentioned it before, but feel free to shout it out again. Uh, I have an Instagram. It is harm reduction underscore OT. Um, I I don't know that it's that useful, but sometimes I post links to like other things that you might find are useful. And I'm always really keen to connect to other people who are working in that space. Like I know that there are, OTs who have much more experience than me, who have huge amounts of skills in that space. And I like love connecting there. Like I like love peer supervision. It's my favorite. How can you say this isn't useful? There's like I, so much. And I, it's very disconcerting to have someone scrolling through your Instagram while you're talking to them. I'll just show you then. Like, yeah, I'm scrolling. <laughs> But like even my drawings are cute. I was going to say what like, <laughs> the graphic aesthetic to me is very appealing. I very uh-huh. much like that. 
so you draw all these. Yeah. That's awesome. Well, only since COVID, so I never used to draw. And then I had to develop a new occupation in COVID because my other ones were talent. pretty limited. So I'm trying to, um, you know, occupation as... Uh, Means. Like process, yeah. not outcome. Yeah, means. That thing, yeah. <laughs> yeah, thanks. That's all right. <laughs> thanks for teaching me how to OT that. That's all right. That's what I'm here for. <laughs> But yeah, no, it's they're rad. I don't know, they're so cool. The little drawings. But anyway, the information is even more rad. Like there's specific things yeah, on here, like safer methods, safer opioid. Like there's really specific stuff on harm minimization as well as other resources. Things like sensory mod. What's this latest? And you one? can see a cute oh, drawing of a ice pipe, which is nice. Like I think what that's that? what people like. If you look in the safer methamphetamine <laughs> use post, oh, yeah. there's like. See how cute that is? That's a really cute pipe. So I've never heard those that put I together know. in a sentence before. It's but such a niche department, my drawings true. of cute Are you drawing on an iPad? Yeah. Cool. Well, maybe those ones were still when I was using my phone. But oh, now I like have like a digital. IPad. You're not like drawing them on paper. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm not. No. It's awesome. There you go. Yeah. No, it was after because there's a post here about getting creative from digital drawing. And that, <laughs> that came before your cute meth pipe. Yeah, you can exactly tell. Like, so the first drawing I've done is in the 15th of March, i.e. when things started getting serious with COVID in my local area. <laughs> well, definitely go along, check out this Instagram account. There's Tons, as much as she denies it, there's tons of really useful information in there. Uh, thank you so much for coming along. Thank and you. Having a chin wag. Yeah, it was less scary than I thought. Everyone says that. And then I'm like, why do people think I'm scary? I'm not afraid of you. I'm oh, afraid of being recorded and of thinking about how once this is done, I will go into a mild panic about have I. What have I said? What everything will be out of my head? It's like a job interview. Without the pay packet <laughs> at the end of it. Oh, you're not giving me money? Well, I, it depends I'm if you get down. the job yet. <laughs> Don't get too far ahead of yourself. Gee. Okay. All right. Sure. <laughs> <laughs>